This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steveroseph.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Today, we're going to be talking about externalities, which I'm going to put a forward here and say that I am not an economist and I'm just somebody who dabbles in economics, but this is an economic concept. I was actually kind of intimidated by this one because like, to me, it's a useful topic to understand or subject to understand superficially. But when I started diving into the actual research, it was like getting into actual math and graphs for economics, which I didn't really feel like would be great to extrapolate to this form, this medium. So instead, we're just going to... Uh, go a little more superficial and just give a bunch of examples. You okay with that, Steve? Of course I'm okay with that. It makes it more interesting. Yeah, of yeah. course it is. Yes. All right. So first I should define them. There are negative and positive externalities. So the definition I'm just going to pull straight from Wikipedia. In economics, an externality is an indirect cost or benefit to an uninvolved third party that arises as an effect. Oh God, this is too, too uh, technical. I'm, I'm, I'm already falling asleep. Yeah, it's the cost or benefit that is given to somebody that's not part of the interaction. So for example, if a factory were to have a lot of waste byproducts from making their product, they would possibly consider dumping it in a nearby stream because that's cheaper, right? It's not dealing with it. So when I buy their good, I'm not paying for that. It's not factored into the actual cost of the goods. So it's like the social cost of that transaction. Like we always think of things in terms of producers and consumers. There's like the company that makes the thing and there's the consumer that buys the thing. And it costs so much to make, costs so much to buy. There's profit for the company. But we don't take into consideration the social costs like pollution or other harms that result from this kind of situation. Right. I think the most succinct way of putting it is it's a cost or benefit for bystanders, people that are not to do with the production or consumption of a good. Right. Right. So economics is not all just producers and consumers. There's a third party here. So it's more like a triangle. There's the producer, consumer, and bystander, as in like the society, I guess you can say. Yes. I have a little bit more to say on that. In other words, all costs are not incorporated into the price of something. The costs have not been, quote, internalized. So they're external costs to the company or to the buyer. This internalization can happen as a result of perception of a brand being damaged by these external costs. So say, for example, the subprime mortgage crisis, that actually would be another example because the banks got all the benefits and then everyone else kind of paid for it when it all blew up in their face. But it can come around through perception, although that was actually more forced. So maybe it's not a great example, but it's something that can be forced through damage the brand through perception or through government intervention. Governments can discourage negative externalities by taxing goods and services that generate spillover costs. That's another way of just phrasing an externality. It's the spillover that they're not taken care of. Mm -hmm. But governments can also encourage positive externalities by subsidizing goods and services that generate positive spillover. So spillover benefits. So I I couldn't help but think about the fight club scene where the narrator is on an airplane and he's explaining what his job is as a, I think it's like a risk assessor or something like that for an automobile company. I think I sent that to you. Do you remember that scene? Yeah. Great scene. Yeah. Perfect example of a negative externality. Yeah. So here's the quote, quote, 
Take the number of vehicles in the field, A, multiply by the probable rate of failure, B, multiply by the average out-of-court settlement, C, A times B times C equals X. If X is less than the cost of a recall, we don't do one, end quote. So in this case, they're willing to allow people to die if out-of-court settlements would be cheaper at the rate of failure and how much damage is done. As long as it's less expensive, they're willing to let people die instead of doing a recall, which is extremely heartless. Yeah. <laughs> but this is where I think government regulation kind of has to come in to some degree. So let's look at the variables here. I just want to like slow this down a little bit. So the definition being there's more than just producers and consumers. There's producers, consumers, and social costs, or bystanders is another word for it. And so in that example, the producer would be the automaker, the consumer would be the person that buys the vehicle. And rather than just being those two parties involved, we're looking at the cost of like the company willing to compromise on safety. And then the social cost would be like people dying in accidents in very brutal ways. Yeah, actually, you know what? This technically is not an externality now that I think about it. Right. Because say Ford is selling a car, not to throw Ford under the bus here just because I don't feel like being open up for a lawsuit of defamation or anything. But let's just say as an example, Ford is selling cars and people are dying as a result of a faulty part. That would include the drivers. But the externality, I guess, would be the people who didn't buy the vehicle who would be hurt. So maybe a better example would be, say, a drunk driver who doesn't want to pay for a cab or whatever. They're taking their privilege of driving while drunk. And if they do get an accident, they will be harmed, yes. But the externality would be anybody or any property that the damage on their way home. Right. And I guess you don't even need to transition to a drunk driver example. You can stick with the automaker example because you can make a faulty part that makes your car somehow like spin out and crash. And then there is a social harm, not just to the consumer. Like you're actually causing more road accidents and that is a bystander harm. So it is an externality. That would be the harm done by selling the vehicle. But because it's to the person who bought it, that is not an externality. It would be two different kinds of costs. No, I'm talking about like if it causes an accident, that's not just the consumer. That's like everyone's involved. Right. Anybody else. That's what I'm saying. There's multiple costs here. So they actually break it down to three different kinds of costs or benefits. One is private costs, the costs paid by the customer or the producer. Right. External costs, which are the costs paid by bystanders outside of the direct exchange. Yep. And then social costs, which is a combination of private and external. So it's everyone involved. So in general, we want surpluses. We want the benefits to spill over to other people, not the costs. And generally, we want specifically social surplus, which is benefits for consumers, producers, and bystanders who have nothing to do with it. Okay. So the faulty vehicle would be the harm to the consumer themselves, the bystanders, other people involved in the accident, and maybe the social costs of on a large scale if this is happening and increasing the cost of healthcare because now there's more people in hospitals if we're in Canada, right? And healthcare is socialized. And so there is a kind of a ripple effect to that social level as well. Yeah. So we've covered the topic. We're pretty much going to just start talking about the examples in a moment. The only extra bit I would add on is that we can talk about negative or positive externalities on the production side or on the consumption side. So for example, a negative externality on the production side would be air pollution or spam emails. It doesn't cost them very much because they don't have to deal with the aftermath and the person receiving it's not going to necessarily enjoy it. So for the spam emails in particular, one click of a button can send like a million emails and all those people have to deal with that bullshit on their own side. So that's on the production side. And then negative consumption externalities on the consumption side, on the person using it, would be like antibiotic resistance. So overusing antibiotics would be a consumption behavior that would actually cause more harm. Because like, I don't know, have you ever had a friend that got angry because their kid was sick and the doctor wouldn't give them antibiotics? Have you heard about people freaking out like this? Well, no, because everyone gets antibiotics, who I know at least. And so I can see that like on the individual level, 
level, you're not getting your antibiotics. It's like, what are you doing? You're not treating my kid. But on the social level, they have a reason not to overprescribe antibiotics because of the, the resistance of these microbial resistance. I don't know. Bacterial. Bacterial. Yeah. I'm just going to yeah. ask you just as a quiz. What are antibiotics to treat? Um, I don't know. Bacterial infections. Because if it's a viral, then you need antivirals. And that's the very problem. I was trying to think of the right word there because I knew you were, you were trying <laughs> to like, nope, actually, I knew you were going to do that. Yeah, I was, I was trying to catch you there. Just because a lot of people, that, that's the very thing that I'm kind of pointing to is that they'll freak out because their doctor didn't give them an antibiotic when they could have a viral infection yes. or like the current situation, like antibiotics are not going to solve COVID because it's not bacteria. It's a virus. Yes. Different. I wanted to talk about positive and negative freedoms. We haven't talked about this concept too much before. We probably will do a full episode on it, but for positive and negative freedoms, I'm just going to make this distinction because it's related. Positive freedom is the freedom to do something. It's like additive. It's something you are able to perform. So a positive freedom would be freedom of speech. You're able to say as much as you want or I guess freedom of movement. You can go wherever you want. It's a positive action you can choose to do. Whereas negative freedoms are things that you are not going to be exposed to. So for instance, the whole thing, I can't remember who said it, but it was your right to throw a punch ends where my nose begins. So you can throw as many punches as you want, but you can't punch me because of the freedom from being punched or being physically assaulted. Right. And so I saw a post about somebody saying that they didn't like how my body, my choice was being used selectively is what they said, because they were talking about how some people are my body, my choice for abortion, but not for vaccines and vice versa, which to me, I think that that's actually kind of silly because they're not the same issue. What do you think about this? In terms of externalities, I think you're referring to, I'm going to assume that you're framing the abortion debate as more of an individual dilemma that doesn't have negative externalities versus a vaccine, which has a ton of, I guess, positive externalities if we're all kind of doing this as individuals. And is that kind of where you're going? Yeah, something along those lines. Because to me, I guess abortion, I guess, would be a positive freedom, the ability to get an abortion, whereas vaccines for other people, I guess, are one's a private good and one's a public good. Being free from having risk of getting, say, measles is something that we should be free from. We should be free from like crazy infectious diseases that will kill a good chunk of the population. That seems like something that we should be free from. It's, it's like doing health and safety for restaurants. I've made this comparison to you in private before where a company could find like say rat meat or some other cheap compromised food that is good enough but could cause people to get sick in the long run through parasites and such that people might not notice and we should be free from unsafe foods in that way which is why we regulate that because otherwise the market will just allow people to get the cheapest barest ingredients that can cause more harm whereas abortions i guess the other side i think if you want to go extreme libertarian they would say that anybody having a kid that's getting support from tax funds would be a public cost so they would be against that as well so i guess people can be consistent in this saying that they don't think that you can get an abortion and you can not get vaccinated, but a lot of people would probably come down the middle in these. What do you think? They're completely different debates. You can use the same phrase for both of them, but the ethics involved are completely different. In terms of the debate around abortion, there's more of this sacredness, a philosophical question of what is human life and maybe even a spiritual question of like a soul and people have those kind of questions around it and the right of an unborn child. And there's so many of those ethical questions which are not there when it comes to vaccination, which is more of a utilitarian type of thing. You're not having to like philosophically 
ask what is a human and what is a soul and you know these more deeper spiritual questions it's just more like you're looking at like cost and benefits to individual versus society It, it tends to be more of a utilitarian ethic well, I mean, you took that in a very different direction than I would have thought. But for me, forcing a woman who doesn't want a child to have a child is a huge burden on her. And like, there's tons of reasons around that why one might have a child or might be pregnant and not want it. That doesn't have to do with making bad choices, supposing that's the route we're going to take. But even then, I think that even if they did make bad choices, if they determine that they're not ready for it, then do we really want kids being raised in an environment where they're not actually wanted or welcome, for one? And for two, I think... I mean, I'm more for vaccine mandates. I know you come down on a different side of this from me, but I'm more in favor of it for certain situations because, frankly, there's so much disinformation out there, information that is purposely being spread to mislead people and to cause mayhem around this particular vaccine. And if something needs to be done en masse for it to be effective and not a waste of time, then we might want to consider actually doing that for certain things. That's my stance. Although I know a lot of people think like giving the government the right to do that would violate body autonomy and all that stuff. But like there's a lot of stuff that we kind of impose on people that are similar to this that would still be for the public good. Right. I mean, there's traffic rules are, are an example of things being imposed on people in terms of freedom of mobility. And it's not complete freedom. There's, there's rules on how to do that. There's other kind of mandated vaccines in the world as well. Like the MMR vaccine, I think, I don't know if it's mandated here. I believe it is for school-age kids. Yeah, and I'm totally for that because we don't want those viruses coming back. And if you look at the states, no offense to you Americans, it's just that the fact that like there's been, I think, measles outbreaks and other diseases that were almost gone that were huge, terrible events in human history are coming back because of just ignorance, just plain and simple. It's just ridiculous. And we can't let society be at the mercy of the least informed and most ignorant. That's my stance for this particular thing. Though I know this is a whole constant raging debate at the moment. So let's move off of it. Yes. I have a lot of examples of uh, negative externalities and positive externalities and psychological and moral and political ones. So let's just start talking about, I guess, some negative externalities. Okay. So disinformation or dis or misinformation, because I, I think I just made that distinction. Misinformation is purposefully spreading disinformation. So false claims for personal profit. So Trump, for example, did a lot. He's not the only one, but he's just a very recent example. Alex Jones's entire career, if you know who that is, Fox yeah. News. The right wing media is a bit more liable to do these things than the left, though they both do it to some degree these days. Mm-hmm. Car emissions was another one, which... I have that theory that like leaded gasoline has caused some emotional stunting or maturity stunting for those that were raised during that time. But that's also like we've talked about this before, but why I'm pro-nuclear, because it's better to have waste to deal with eventually as opposed to constantly breathing poison now. Mm. Can you think of any other negative externalities? Negative externalities. I guess the pollution example is kind of the obvious one in all different types of pollutions. Oh, light pollution. That's a big one. That actually hurts a lot of migrating animals. I didn't actually realize depending on what they use to migrate because some of them have some pretty advanced wetware just random stuff installed in their heads that let them either read magnetic waves i guess they're i don't even know how it's it works honestly i read a whole book on it and i was just like holy shit there's a lot of different ways to navigate and one of them is through light so like moths for instance the reason they always constantly fly into flames and stuff is because the way they navigate is in spaces way away from modern technology they've evolved outside of that realm obviously and they would navigate at night through the moon they would just keep the moon on their left side for example and so they keep flying and have the moon as their navigation but if the light source is much closer 
them, they will constantly be like, oh shit, I'm, I'm way off. And they'll keep turning because they're trying to keep it on their left. And that obviously causes them to crash into it. Oh, wow. Wouldn't have thought. And so I guess effect on animals would be an example of kind of a bystander effect here. Of We don't consider them in, in a lot of our decisions in nature. In general, we don't know a lot of the impacts of things on nature. Actually, when I was thinking about positive externalities, I came up with just basically like a lot of the natural world has positive externalities like trees, for example. They're just doing what they do to live and we benefit as a byproduct of what they're doing. Whereas our negative externalities would be causing them to be cut down. Well, actually, that's not an externality. That's a direct transaction, I guess. But changing ecosystems that end up killing random animals, that would be a negative externality of our behaviors. Yeah. One thing I was going to bring up was we didn't talk too much about it, but like libertarians believe that the free market is the best thing we've got. It'll be maximized efficiency for everyone. It's going to find solutions to all of our problems eventually. That's what they believe. Those that believe in the invisible hand of the market, Adam Smith's whole thing. And I think you and I, just before we started recording, came up with some obvious reasons why that's wrong. Did you want to talk about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I love the concept of externalities because it justifies taxation in a way that makes so much sense. Because we always think of taxes equals bad. And I could see that as a business owner, I can have similar sentiments on that. But if we didn't have taxation or incentives from a third party, like a government body, for example, not just like corporations and consumers, then things can be really bad for society. Like, for example, corporations would just, you know, cut costs. Because the goal of a corporation, as a lot of people in a libertarian perspective would rightfully argue, is pretty much to maximize profit. Right. So that right there is what they're efficient at doing. They say they're efficient, but it doesn't say what they're efficient at. And it's just to make profits. And that's okay. That's what they're there for. But if you're just letting them maximize profits and you're just letting consumers maximizing their pleasure value. or the value that they're getting, then that's completely not considering the social harms. Like they're maximizing profits by polluting in this river and the person that buys it doesn't really get affected by that particular pollution. But then in the long run, we all kind of get affected little by little. Yes. I think in terms of the government role in free markets, people think they should have as little hand as possible. And I think that is true as little as possible, which is not to say nothing at all, no. because I think if we didn't have rules about this stuff, we'd have like child slavery, we'd have sex slaves, we'd have a thriving organ market, probably like people, this is inflammatory. Also, people have said that there's a reason why China has one of the shortest wait times for organ transplants. So you can figure out what that might be. But there are incentives that have people to to sell themselves by parts to make that extra little bit of money. This also, I think, kind of ignores the fact that markets can both corrupt and coerce people. So the opposite side of coercion would be the freedom argument. So corruption, for instance, say when I gave a speech at your wedding, suppose that my heartfelt speech that was amazing and everyone loved it was actually a speech that I paid for. I bought it from somebody else. Do you think that would cheapen the speech I gave? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it wasn't for me anymore, right? So that's that's a way that it corrupts it. Whereas coercion, for instance, like some people argue, well, actually, people make both arguments for sex work that it's either coercive because people don't tend to go into sex work with better choices or whatever you define better to be but also some people believe that sex work cheapens sex as it is like just it existing as something that's sold commoditizing it is wrong Absolutely. So both those arguments are made there, but these are the ways that markets can kind of go astray. So this is where the role of government has come in to kind of regulate these things and make it so that people can have certain assurances when buying that we don't have to worry about. For example, aerosol sprays and fridges with Freon, both of those, they move from something worse to something better, though it's still debatable. And I think that the government played a hand in enforcing that. So aerosol sprays used to use chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, which were bad because they're eating away at the ozone layer. 
and then they switch to volatile organic compounds, which now contribute ozone levels to the ground level, which gives us more asthma-inducing smog. So we switched one externality to another. And I wanted to fit in, this ties into regulation and why we need governments to regulate things so these things don't happen in terms of runaway externalities or switching externalities. But where taxation actually comes into this and bring it to the climate side of things, whether or not a particular country or policy is working is not what I'm referring to here. But theoretically, like if we're putting a tax on something that is harmful to the environment, let's say producing carbon, like the carbon tax in Canada is a big one. Not to say it's the most efficient way to do it, but the logic here is that you're putting a tax on that so the corporation pays more in producing that product, which then passes that cost on to the consumer, which reduces demand, which then reduces the externality happening in itself. And maybe even some of that taxation could go into reparations in terms of some of the the externality. So you've kind of interrupted that whole ecosystem of supply and demand by taxing the producer, passing the cost along with increased costs, lower demand. It corrects that kind of market relation to incorporate social cost. Right. Actually, touching on carbon, did you know that carbon footprints were created by BP as a smokescreen tactic to kind of shift the blame of the externalities that is core to their business model? To shift it to the consumer? Yeah. Yeah. By saying carbon footprints, everyone should be like, what is your carbon footprint? Making us talk about that. When I just looked it up, it was 100 companies contribute 71, 71% of global emissions, according to the guardian and that to me is like even if we were to all stop our personal wasteful behaviors en masse everybody even if that accounted for all 29 percent that's left it wouldn't be enough that's also excluding the fact that maybe by all of us avoiding those which honestly is a huge ask but even if we did do that it would probably starve the companies but what people hear then is that there's no point we should do anything but I, I don't think that's the solution to me if you're using it towards an end of pressuring government to take action that is necessary against these these corporations because it's the only thing that can stand up to them yes and that's why we need governments as kind of to kind of incorporate social things that are not necessarily profitable but contribute to our well-being in general like clean water and clean air and and the rest of it and just not being threatened with a knife when you walk outside your home because they want your liver because it's going for a good rate yeah (laughs) you ever thought about like those biometric scanners where it's like your thumb or your hand has a a chip implanted in it that could be a pass for paying for anything or your id or whatever i'm personally worried about that because it's like you're giving people a fairly sizable incentive to cut off a limb or a part of you right yeah, that's I never thought of that. That's an externality that I've never even considered. Yeah. So utilitarianism, you mentioned that briefly earlier, and I wanted to point out one that is kind of an externality situation where there's a philosophical argument about suppose there's one suffering faultless child in a basement locked somewhere that's being beaten Ooh, day and night. That's and brutal. Yes. And for some reason, like, I mean, there's better formulations of this argument, but for some reason that child's suffering leads to prosperity for everyone else in society. <laughs> what? Should we continue to allow a child to suffer? According to the utilitarian argument, yes. Yes, and the utilitarian argument would say yes, we should, because the ends justify the means, I guess, in this way. That's the limits of a utilitarianism. Yeah, that's one of the limits right there. Before we move on to psychological and moral and political externalities, I want to talk about Coca-Cola. They also did a kind of bait and switch similar to the carbon footprint from BP was they didn't want to keep having to clean their bottles. They originally sold Coca-Cola in glass bottles, which you could then return to the machines that sold them. And then they would wash them and recycle them and reuse them. So 
that was way more effective for the environment, better for the environment, but it was not as profitable for Coca-Cola. So instead, they switched to plastics, as we currently have, and they then started campaigns talking about how it's people's fault that they're not recycling, knowing full well that really you can't really recycle the plastic. It's essentially a one-time use a lot of the time. Wow. Yeah, all those like recycling campaigns, like it's your duty to protect the planet, recycle. Meanwhile, like why didn't they just put it in glass in the first place? Yeah, I mean, something we could actually reuse. And the thing is, there's not enough funding for recycling centers. The amount of recycling we have, most of it gets dumped in the garbage. This isn't to say don't recycle. You should make an effort when you can. But it's really depressing when you look into it. We need to hold them accountable. And that's the bottom line. And I'm kind of glad that right now we've got more pushes towards the left for action because these things are not going to be taken care of by the right since they're more about enabling corporations and less about enabling individuals. Speaking of corporations, I see this quote here in the film, The Corporation. It says, the corporation is an externalizing machine moving its operating costs and risks to external organizations and people in the same way that a shark is a killing machine. The corporation is an externalizing machine. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a profit maximizing machine. And one of the ways you can maximize your profits is by not paying for the costs, right? If I could just mug a guy and steal all of his stuff. Then you maximize your profit. Yeah. I mean, stealing from people is very highly profitable if we're able to sell it. Yeah. Even if I sell it for a dollar, if it's worth 300, that's still like, other than the risk of being caught by the police and all that, it's very profitable, infinitely profitable. 100% profits on stealing. <laughs> Unless there's like you had to buy like fuel to get to the place to steal and whatnot. But yes, you can. You're just over there, you know. <laughs> you can get 100% profits if you are unscrupulous enough. Yes. So now on to psychological externalities, which this one, I have a video that I can link to in the show notes that I talked about this. I found it fairly interesting. Just that people behave differently based on whether they're in a low or high inequality environment. So if you're in a high inequality environment, then you're more likely to want to change the system and want to change the rules. Because the system, especially if you are basically barred from entry or barred from moving up, then of course it's a rigged system. Then why would you want to even take part in it? Which is where you and I have kind of talked about revolution insurance, where the rich or whoever companies should be less unequal because the greater the inequality, the more likely these kind of revolts will actually happen. Right. Yes. And so being benevolent is revolution insurance because they won't kill you with their pitchforks. They'll be like, oh yeah, that guy is good. Let's go get this other billionaire. Well, no, I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, on on the micro level, but to me, it's more like the macro level where you could avoid the pitchforks coming out altogether by having a more equal society, which is why minimum wage should go up. I mean, in the US, I think it should be $35 if it matched productivity, which again, because productivity went up, there's less jobs. So because one person can do the work of more people. So if one person's covering like five people's work, then paying them $35 an hour is still a bargain because it's still less than five times minimum wage from before, likely, depending on what minimum wage. Actually, I don't even know if that's true because US minimum wage is all over the place and fairly low. But actually, another weird thing that came about was that people who were... Okay, so they did this quiz thing where they asked people their preferences on a number of things and their income and their saving habits. And they told them that either they were richer than their comparison group, the people that were similar to them, or they were poorer. They were given a choice afterwards that was... Is they can have $100 right now or $150 in a week. What do you think each group chose? Oh, 100 right now. Both chose 100 right now? Why? Because that's the psychology of it. <laughs> no. 
and that's not. So the people labeled as poor chose 100 right now, whereas the people labeled richer were able to wait an extra week to get 150. 50% gains in one week is worth it. Also, when asked after getting the money whether they would gamble it, the poorer ones chose to gamble. So you've probably come across this a lot, that there's the irony that the people least able to gamble are the ones most likely to do it because they have the least amount to lose. Right, yeah. And so the people, well, I don't know. I see a lot of wealthy people who gamble, so it's a little biased. I guess, yeah, your bias is there. I would bet, I don't have any data on this, I would bet that low-income people or people with low assets, low socioeconomic status, as the psychological term is, those people would be far outnumber the number of high socioeconomic status people in gambling. Right, in terms of raw numbers, yeah. Yeah, poor people gamble more than rich people is a fancy way of saying that's that. That's just society in general. Yeah, that's true. Could be a sampling bias because there's a lot more poor people than there and are rich people. Most people are taking the hundred dollars right now. But also that reminds me of the guy who did the experiment of the marshmallow test. We talked about it in another episode, but to summarize, yeah, the marshmallow test being put kids in a room and you put a marshmallow in front of them, you leave the room and you say, if you eat this now, you'd get one. But if you wait until I come back, you'll get two. And I guess some of the kids would eat the one now and then they wouldn't get another one. Others were able to wait. And this is supposed to be a test of one's willpower. And as we talked about in the willpower episode, I think it's a largely overrated concept. It's very individualistic. It only has so much power psychologically. And the part that's not mentioned in this experiment is that if you look at the socioeconomic status of the children, apparently the lower socioeconomic status ones are are more likely to eat it now, whereas the higher or wealthier children or wealthier backgrounds are more likely to be able to wait. I wonder why. Yeah, I mean, an unstable environment where things are not delivered predictably and on time always. Yeah, you can understand why they would take what's in front of them and not trust that (laughs) another one will come. Trust is a big part of that too. But something in front of me now, I don't know if it's going to stay there. Like the uncertainty and the scarcity that goes along with that. And so, yeah. And I'm trying to figure out how this ties into externalities. Oh, we were just talking about the take $100 now versus $150 because it's saying that these are psychological externalities to inequality. Although I think it's a bit of a stretch. I'm taking from this other guy. Just another fun fact. I do like that. Yeah, I figured you would. Another fun fact that he threw out was that higher pay inequality in a corporation causes less productivity, less job satisfaction, and less, I don't remember, optimism at the bottom, but it doesn't increase it at the top. So the people at the bottom feel demotivated or less productive. They don't want to be there, but the people at the top are not dramatically increased in their productivity or desire to be there either. So it's just net kind of loss in attitude from this inequality. The workplace culture is the externality of inequality. Yes, I guess you could say that. It was talking about how Americans, when asked what is a fair differential between the average worker and the CEO, and it depends on state, but I think people would accept 20 to 30 times the annual income. They're like, that seems fair, but I think it's actually closer to 300 times the average CEO compared to the average worker. Oh, wow. So it's way out there. Next, we're going to talk about moral and political externalities. So I've already talked about the Michael Sandel's corruption and coercion arguments as to how these things are corrupted by adding a dollar amount to them. So like slavery, buying organs, selling nature, selling spirituality. Like what are they called? Indulgences. Do you remember that? The Christian church sold them? Oh, I'm remembering this. Indulgences. Yeah. Who did that? I forget. I think it was the Catholic church and it was essentially buying your way into heaven. Yes. But these are to do more with markets. So I think I'm just going to gloss over these because... 
they're not directly related to externalities. I don't know why he did that. I guess the other argument in terms of government regulations role in markets to reduce externalities would be antitrust laws because antitrust laws, if you're unfamiliar, are laws that break up monopolies or I guess oligopolies because either single or multiple organizations or corporations that rule a particular domain because as they get too big, there's no other choice but to choose them so they can choose to be less ethical. Like as we were saying, corporations can change based on reputational feedback. So if they're doing something terrible and people hate them for it, then they can stop doing that out of social pressure. But if you're a monopoly and there's no other choice, then you kind of have to continue to shop there because otherwise you're just not going to get the things you need. So that's another role that government needs to take because ultimately markets do tend towards monopolies without government intervention, which again, if we have monopolies, that actually stops the freedom for people to choose, like I just said, and the ability for competition to create conditions for efficiency. Because like that whole argument about the invisible hand requires that there's competition. But if there's any competition that crops up and the giants just step on them and squash them every time, then that kind of frustrates that entire move. Oh, yeah. No, I love it. It takes away competition in the name of efficiency and profit maximization. And so markets are efficient at maximizing profit, but tend towards cannibalizing themselves and taking away the fundamental need of that competition. Yes. Yeah. And they get slovenly and archaic and bad. One of the books I was reading is Peter Drucker. He's a management guy, one of the foundational people that studied management as a formal study. I'm reading one called Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And it was talking about how corporations, this is not directly related, of course, but corporations can have something that they don't expect to be a runaway success. So like, for instance, one company started selling appliances and the appliances were like going like crazy, just selling really well. And the company saw this as a problem because their percentage of income was out of whack now. Suddenly their appliances are selling way more than their other things. And they didn't like that because it wasn't purposeful. It was incidental. And so they reacted stupidly by trying to frustrate the sales of something that was going well. It was making them money, but they saw it as something they didn't plan. They didn't control. Therefore, it's a mistake. Wow. Okay. That's that's strange. Yeah. And this is another part of, I guess, like bullshit jobs and all these things. We could talk about those, but I think a lot of that's missing from the free market argument that everything is good in that is that human foibles still mess things up. Like psychology will cause stupid choices to be made left, right, and center. Like managers are more important. The Bullshit Jobs is a book. And in that he argues that there are different kinds of jobs that are made just to make superiors feel more important. So if you're a manager who only has two underlings, you'll be less important than somebody who has like say 10 underlings. So you'll hire more people who are doing basically no work just to be more important. Butts and seats. So this this whole incentivizing is not perfectly efficient. Regulation and the rest of it are there to kind of disrupt incentives gone awry. Right, yeah. So final thing we'll talk about today is positive externalities. We're going to focus on more good things. Yeah, instead of corruption and pollution. Yeah, all bad things. No, there are positive externalities as well. And your profession is one of them. Ooh, tell me. Well, therapy, you're paying a therapist to talk to you, to help you to work through your problems and to become a better person. Ultimately, I guess you could see as one goal of, I guess, your so job. Let's, let's put that in the framework, though. Do you have the consumer as in person seeking therapy and you have like the one that I guess would be like the corporation or me as a corporation. The service provider. I am, I am yeah. incorporated, by the way, providing the service. And so we look at that as just a simple market transaction. But the externality is not that that person is just getting a benefit because that person is going to take the benefits of the therapy and be better in their daily life, be a better friend, family member, spouse, a better worker worker and better just person in general going about society and the ripple effects of that are a huge social benefit. Yes, exactly. Because having 
people that are more psychologically well adapted and psychologically flexible will mean that generally they'll be causing less harm to other people through their actions or words. And more benefits too. And I guess if we look at this simple framework of there's a cost to therapy and the cost is, I guess, quite high for a lot of people. And so that individual is burdened with the full cost, but they're only getting some of the benefits. Like they're getting a lot of the benefits, but they're getting the primary benefits, but there's a spillover benefit and they're paying the full burden of that, but not getting all of the benefits. And so that's where the argument comes in of it should be subsidized to kind of incentivize more people, create a higher demand for therapy. Therefore, you're incentivizing the positive externality. While I agree with what you're saying, it also seems very self-serving coming from somebody who's a therapist. I actually work in a job that is subsidized by Health Canada. No, I know. And I'm actually for it because I think that that and like emotional regulation and communication skills should be taught because we don't have that much debate in psych about what is psychologically healthy or psychologically flexible person. But yet we just don't feel the authority to teach that in schools for some reason. I think it's probably because the right will push against it as being like flowery bullshit, but it seems like it'd be essential in in my mind. But also in terms of what you're saying, like the, the benefits, the person gains the benefits of the service that the therapist provides, but they also gain the benefits as knock on effect of their relationships in their life being better as well. So it kind of amplifies in in multiple directions. Oh, yeah. So I agree with you. Oh, yeah. So therefore, we should subsidize all counseling so that we have happier people and happier society in general. The end. Sure. Just depends on how much we're talking. Turning to the natural world, one externality, I'm not sure if this is technically an externality, but it's a positive exchange. It's synergistic, I guess, but it's birds that pick gator's teeth. You know, the ones that go in there because they're they don't really give a shit that they are helping the alligator. They just want the food. And so they go in and they pick the food from the teeth of the alligator and they take off. The alligator is getting a positive benefit, a spillover benefit of having less tooth decay and less pain from whatever's stuck in their teeth. But I'm not sure if this is just symbiotic or what. But I was also thinking about ethical husbandry, so taking care of animals and livestock, because ants actually take care of aphids. <laughs> Ants are kind of aphid ranchers. They, I think they milk the aphids and they protect them. So, yeah. And so is that just an exchange? I guess it might just be an exchange, not an externality. They call it a mutualism, I believe is what they call it in biology. Yeah. Or symbiosis. Yeah. The sun, I guess, would be the obvious thing that gives us huge positive spillover benefits because it it doesn't gain from us at all. (laughs) The sun is a good thing. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, like, yeah, obviously the sun is a good thing, but I mean, it's providing a lot of positive externalities, negative externalities as well, because like we get skin cancer from it, but obviously enabling all life without any real gain to the sun is a huge we benefit for us. We should subsidize the sun too. Well, we should do what we can to sustain it <laughs> in the far flung future. Worms, I thought were another one. It's like a lot of the things in the different life cycle, they all kind of just are doing their own thing for selfish reasons. Like worms are just trying to eat and consume to live, but they're breaking down organic matter that allows the cycle of life to continue. So I don't know, that's what I was saying. Like just as I started thinking about the natural world, you can pick a bunch of different examples and because they all play a role in the ecosystem, they all could be seen as selfishly gaining from stuff, but inadvertently helping the whole. Yeah. Yeah. And that what it's all about. Isn't that what it's all about? Yeah, it is. I actually wanted to close on the social world. So we talked about therapy, but I ended up listing a bunch of stuff that would have positive externalities and ultimately kind of came down to socialism. (laughs) 
and I'm defining socialism as like, if we're looking at the left, right spectrum, socialism is in the middle. I know the right likes to demonize it as much as possible by making socialism and communism the same word. Generally, they're not. Generally, socialism is seen as somewhere in the middle where it's like a social benefits and protections for individuals while still having a capitalistic market. People would argue that it's in flux and unsustainable because capitalists will eventually move to the right to benefit themselves, which has happened in the past like 50 years. But ultimately, it seems like it's it's the better choice because like, say, preventative health care. If you didn't have to pay an arm and a leg for healthcare, you could go in and get something treated for 50 bucks instead of what it will later cost $5,000 in surgery or other treatments that it will cost, right? Which includes public healthcare. Did you have more to say oh, about that? I've, I've heard stories. I talked to all kinds of people and I haven't experienced this, but like people who can't afford to get their teeth fixed, like they have something that could be relatively inexpensive to fix comparably because teeth stuff is it's, always expensive. It's expensive but the government doesn't cover it and so what they have to do instead is get antibiotics to fix the infection which then impacts their gut health and now they're having other health issues which can cause depression yep. and obesity and other negative effects and now they're using the healthcare system in other ways that are costing a lot more and people are just generally unhappier and so there's externalities and all of the rest of it and meanwhile they could have just had the whole root of the problem fixed with a root canal for a few hundred dollars or a thousand i don't know yeah supposing they could afford it but because they can't they don't causes further problems. This also is related to my professional background at one point, which was supportive housing. It's cheaper to house people than to let them live on the street because they end up having more police calls, more crime. Socialism. Yeah, I guess. But that's what I'm saying. It is technically socialism. And and I I agree with you here. Tell me why. Well, it's just, again, you're talking about hospital visits, the cost of the hospital, emergency room visits, random violence, police stuff, crime. Stuff I just basically listed. I just repeated myself. But all these things end up costing a lot more and get worse than if we just give them like a small apartment where they can live on their own. And some people actually argue that the reason we don't solve homelessness, even though we could afford it, especially since we're among the richest countries in the world, is because they want that threat to be there so that you have to work in shitty jobs. (laughs) It really feels like we're on a cusp of the system changing. Either it's got to reform or it's going to be overthrown with civil unrest at some point. Recently, there was that Fox interview with the mod from Antiwork, and that went terribly. But the movement, as I've seen in the aftermath of that, has continued and it's international. So a lot of them were saying they didn't care about this American perception, but it is widespread that people believe that stuff needs to change. And from my perspective, while it doesn't seem inevitable that something's going to come from it, because like Occupy Wall Street, if not this movement, then another movement, what they require now, in my opinion, is a charismatic leader who can step up and say the right things and appear the right way. Because like Occupy Wall Street had the same kind of sentiment, but it fell apart because there was no central leadership, which they saw as a good thing. But in the media, you just get eviscerated, like just completely destroyed and laughed at because no one can really say what you're about. And that's what a leader is supposed to be for in these kind of situations. But I see positive changes in these directions coming. Finally, one stat I found... I remember this one's off the top of my head. Infrastructure, building roads and highways, railways, bridges, stuff like that. Every dollar spent gets back, I think, $2 in returns from economic activity that it enables by allowing people to go to different areas, to sell stuff, to work different places further away. These are benefits we get from that. So when we think about, say, the government paying for a railway system, the railway system itself, it may not break even for operating costs, but the net gain for the government through taxation because of increased economic output could be worth it still. Like it's fine to have a loss in one area if you make it up for it in a bunch of other areas, right? Right, right. I like the positive externality discussion. It's hopeful. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot more uplifting if we can actually get them to happen. The last one is early childhood programs. Every dollar spent earns back two to four dollars. So even more than infrastructure. Wow. 
How about that? Maybe we should even like subsidize gyms because then you get more people physically active and then you have reduced the burden on the healthcare system and also mental health improves and society's better. Well, I mean, I'm fine with doing like a sugar tax and stuff like that. Like those, again, those are lowering demand. Yeah, you could do it from both ends. You tax sugar and then put that money to subsidize gyms. Well, okay. First, I'd be fine with taxing sugar and subsidizing healthcare. That would be better for me, like say dental stuff, because that's more directly related. The problem is that when we look at who's buying the most sugary things, and there's a social injustice to taxing those products because it's going to burden the poor. Yeah. But also subsidizing certain things. The question is throwing money at something. Is that actually going to encourage behavior? Because like everyone knows they should work out. You can work out for free, frankly. You can go running. You could. So it's not a matter of that. So it might be better to tackle it from other angles. And I'd be fine with experimenting with that to see what is affecting what is not everyone likes the gym i'm just using this as a hypothetical i'm not pro just gym yeah so i think the bottom line takeaway is we want more social surpluses we want benefits for the consumers the producers and the bystanders we want everybody to win we don't want random people who aren't benefiting to pay the costs and we need to pressure governments to take action to fight these things and fight for the people because it's otherwise not going to happen that's it love it yeah exactly and that is all folks yeah, and thank you for tuning in. Leave us a, what are they called again? Review. Review. Leave us a review. <laughs> One of those things. Yeah, yeah, those things that we don't ask enough we for. We don't have any <laughs> of. No, no, we have some. Oh, we have really? some. But yeah, we got you out there. Also, I would also like to know that if you're listening to this right now, our audience is relatively small, which means that you as the audience could reach out to us and have an outsized impact on what we talk about next or whatever. Because if you want to give us feedback, then you're going to be a much larger percentage than after the audience grows. So if you want to drop us a line, our email is in the show notes. So feel free. And thank you for tuning in. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Oh boy, I sure do love killing. What?